with the threat of yet another virus spreading from China and the Chinese government effectively quarantining millions of people inside the city of Wuhan, the world is asking, what is the threat of contagion given the rapid spread of symptoms and our increasingly globalized system? Theories range on the origin of the disease from poor sanitation to an unintentional or even intentional release of a new bioweapon. But what is clear is that the spread of many pandemics in the past have had the ability to not only wipe out vast populations, but also completely rewrite the course of history by acting as a wrecking ball to prevailing political and sociological orders. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing. Hello, welcome to the myth of the 20th century. I'm Hank Oslo and I'm joined here by uh, Nick Mason and Adam Smith, whose voices you surely recognize, unless they were racked by Chinese pneumonia. Do you guys have the Chinese pneumonia yet? Uh, no. Uh, yes. Again, is still... Nick, I can tell you're bluffing. How? What are the symptoms, Hank? How do you know? Uh, But, yeah, how how do I know? Uh, from what I hear, it's like flu-like symptoms also, uh, you know, if you've eaten the bat lately. Not not an expression or a euphemism, by the way, like a literal bat. What kind of bat? Just, you know, the kind that flies around. <laughs> what kind of bat? Well, there's vampire like, look, bats. There's a, lot there's, of, there's a lot of bats the flying bats. around, eat all sorts of stuff. <laughs> An Asian bat. <laughs> Batman. I don't know, guys. I don't know what's going Surprising, on. Surprisingly enough, the uh, the Asian bat flu is not the uh, the subject of our uh, our show tonight. We're going to be talking about the the broader uh, issue of bioweapons, not to cause uh, to cast aspersions on our uh, you know our, our brave uh, brave Chinese compadres, and I'm sure some uh, some brave Chinese listeners. Nobody's implying this is some sort of a escaped bioweapon from their level four CDC uh, facility that the uh, perfidious Canadians had just shipped samples of Godling knows what to months before. Mm. Nobody's suggesting this, but there is an interesting segue uh, into the history of the U S biological weapons uh, project, particularly the stuff originating from the Rocky mountain labs, Plum Island, Fort Detrick, all this, uh, all this delicious stuff, um, and how this sort of informs our perspective on uh, our our coming age of uh, face maskery. So, yeah, 
Well, I, my, got some, uh, I got some numbers. Let me just uh, break this out. This is just obviously referring to the Wuhan, China originating virus, which everybody is apoplectic over in the media. And, you know, I think for fair, fairly good reason, I wouldn't want this in my backyard, obviously. So anybody who's wanting to travel to China or stuck in China, even worse, um, you know, be careful, right? But here's here's the numbers as of today, according to Bloomberg. Uh, China uh, says that 41 have died with 100, and, uh, excuse me, uh, 1,200 uh, and 87 confirmed cases. Uh, virus um, is confirmed in patients in Australia, Malaysia, and Pakistan. One new case in Thailand. And I've also seen cases where I think somebody in Texas might have gotten it. So uh, the United States is by no means immune. And given our globalized system, uh, there is a fairly good chance that it will continue to spread. Yeah, those uh, those numbers I think are probably from yesterday because as of today I see uh, like forty four hundred confirmed and one hundred and seven deaths. It's a uh, neatly tracking a, a nice exponential curve here. Yeah, and I've heard differing estimates too. And this was uh, over the weekend. Uh, I was um, <clears throat> I was hearing that the UK scientists uh, predict that seventeen hundred cases in Wuhan, up to four thousand total. Uh, so when you're dealing with viruses, obviously these things because they're latent and dormant and people don't report it and people don't know it's really a, a difficult one to pin down very carefully but the i guess the alarmist approach is perhaps necessary in some some regards because if you ignore it you know you have a potential for a pandemic which i believe is defined as something that spreads globally which it got yeah. that pandemic for you wire fans yeah so, yeah, we, before the show, we were talking about, you know, SARS and stuff. And I remember when that was sort of the, the hype thing. And then bird flu became a thing. And then swine flu. And, you know, when you hear enough of these things, you start to wonder if it actually ever goes anywhere. And so far, it hasn't really, which I guess is something we can be grateful for. But historically, people really have suffered from this. I mean, the Black Plague obviously was the most notable in European history, killing about a third of the population and arguably transforming the entire society, breaking apart feudalism, depopulating the whole countryside with, or, or, or basically reducing the number of people uh, per fixed amount of land and giving people the opportunity to actually acquire more wealth per person, which many people speculate was actually the beginning of the Renaissance and actually the decline of the church. So these sorts of things, if they actually fully uh, roll towards their... Uh, inevitable outcome to the extent such as that, uh, you can actually see very sweeping societal changes. Now, who knows what will happen with this, but I guess the purposes of today's show is to really explore the possibilities with this and what does it mean and what has happened in the past and what's likely to happen in the future. Yeah, so many people of... forget the 1918 flu, the oh. that was a pandemic and that infected hundreds of millions of people. That's right. Yeah, there's all sorts. I mean, that's the sort of most contemporaneous uh, kind of general society um, plague, really, that we have uh, experience and firsthand uh, accounts with after the sort of advent of modern, uh, relatively modern sanitation practices. There's a, a nice uh, uh, statistic that if you look back to about, uh, I think the number was 1920 or so, 
and you disaggregate the deaths from the uh, top 10 or so uh, major infectious diseases, things like, you know, your cholera, your tuberculosis, et cetera, the uh, U.S. Uh, mortality rate has not shifted at all. And what that tells you is that essentially all medical advances uh, whatsoever really sort of culminated in this idea of public health that uh, you would have clean drinking water if somebody got sick you would have some sort of a quarantine procedure whether that's uh you know whatever your uh, your contemporaneous uh, version is of the uh, the guys in the spaceman suits uh, or just somebody swaddled up in uh, you know 16 layers of linen with uh, some rubbing alcohol draped over them that you would isolate patients, you would go out of your way to try to uh, treat infectious diseases. You had an idea of how infectious diseases are spread, if that's via water or uh, via uh, droplets, if it's airborne, some close personal contact, things like tick-borne illnesses that we'll talk about later. But you understand the mechanisms, and so you're able to effectively use the power of the state to suppress those uh, those mechanisms. And once you get beyond that, like in terms of overall mortality rate at a given age, everything is basically icing on the cake. There's a lot of you know rare cancers that we can treat better than we used to be able to, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know they they really don't shorten lifespans that much. What really shortens your lifespan is catching the Spanish flu and dying at the age of 19. Yeah, and, and a lot of the deaths that occurred in the Spanish flu was arguably uh, ascribed to just lack of quarantining procedures. People were traveling. It was really, I guess, the first world war uh, in effect. And uh, with the advent of the railroad and the, the shipping and all obviously the huge quantities of men and arms being uh, de-employed uh, or brought back to their countries of origin, but they're in that sort of cauldron of uh, the trenches, literally, whereby you can imagine a lot of the uh, infections were uh, very ripe and very likely to, to spread, uh, then them then going back to where they came from was, I think, really the first time the world had seen something that had spread that quickly. Uh, now, the bubonic plague, which I'd mentioned before, the Black Plague, that took, um, that took basically the course of about four years to spread around Europe and arguably longer than that to even get to Europe. Um, the origins of it are somewhat debated, but a lot of people speculate that the plague itself actually came from Central Asia and it was actually or possibly spread uh, because there were some uh, Genovese traders in some town that was being besieged in Turkey or the Ottoman Empire perhaps and I don't even know if it was that was the empire at the time so uh, Forgive me for my lack of knowledge, but this was this was about the thirteen hundred late late thirteen hundreds, <clears throat> and there was a, a a group of Tartars sieging the city, and they were throwing or catapulting, I should say, diseased corpses into the city, which were likely infected with with plague. Now, plague is somewhat different than what we're talking about with the modern or the, the sort of recent 
infection or outbreak that's been happening in China. The plague is actually bacteria. Uh, it's something that gets inside of your body and multiplies and creates these horrible black spots that uh, let off this very terrible odor. And it's not something that is necessarily transmissible the same way a virus is. A virus is typically transmitted through the respiratory tract where you're breathing outwards and it really only lives very, uh, for a short period of time in that sort of mist that comes out of you. And, you know, when you sneeze, that's, that's basically its chance to spread. In the case of bacteria, they can live in, in a dead, decaying corpse for much longer. And so in some ways, depending on what it is, it's actually much more dangerous. And that's arguably uh, what exactly what happened here. So when these guys, they got sick, they finally escaped the, the city. They went back to uh, Genoa wasn't really Italy at the time. It was just a city state. Uh, and then they're traders, right? So they're interacting with lots of people. And then it started spreading to, to France and it started going through the continent and eventually over across the English channel to England. And then finally up to the, the Nordic countries. But that took four years with today. I mean, you're talking about somebody getting on a plane and spreading it in the course of even less than a day. So it's, it's quite frightening. Uh, at the same time, it is good that we do have more advanced medical technology and understanding uh, because back then people really did not understand what was going on. I mean, the church was sort of ascribing it to people's <coughs> sinful behavior, and they, they, they actually lost a lot of credibility because of that because people who were very good churchgoers just were getting sick like everybody else. So, um, yeah, I should that, add... If the, the current Chinese flu becomes as bad as the H1N1 flu was in 1918, then it will have to be called the H1B1 flu. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's sort of, uh, you know, the, you know, tautologically, but the virulent uh, nature of infectious diseases is one of the things that's made them sort of uh, uh, sought after um, in the context of weapon systems. Um, Greg Cochran actually has an interesting hypothesis that uh, one of the first modern instances of this was uh, the uh, the Soviets uh, possibly uh, using, I don't know, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, Tularemia um, in the uh, the defense of Stalingrad. Um, there's ample evidence that the uh, the Japanese um, used uh, biological warfare in their uh, uh, various campaigns in in uh, China, um, or at least experimented uh, with such agents. But it's sort of a tricky thing to develop like you know you can talk about the the stories of um, people during sieges like throwing uh, like diseased carcasses over the city walls just to you know see if anything would happen but for things that are truly uh, contagious that actually spread uh, from person to person you can see why obviously that would be less than ideal because definitionally you're in close contact with the enemy you're ideally trying to capture uh, capture soldiers, like the ones who aren't moving around so quickly because they're sick and contagious are going to be the ones that you're capturing. You're moving over their lines, so you're interacting with all the equipment that they left behind. Somebody sneezed on you know their their cryptographic machine or whatever you're trying to seize for intelligence and suddenly your guys have got it. 
there are a lot of reasons why um, something that spreads purely person to person would be a terrible uh, idea for uh, a country to try to develop in a weapons context, which is why you see kind of these uh, niche uh, diseases or things with alternate transmission vectors being explored in the context of biological warfare. So one of the more famous uh, examples of this is uh, anthrax. It's this uh, uh, virus um, where you can essentially uh, dry out little particles that have little uh, anthrax virus particles embedded in them, and you can mist it onto an area, and you get horribly sick and probably die, but you actually cannot spread it uh, to another human being if you are infected. So it's great for things like area denial. You sprinkle it over some area and it's like, wow, everybody who uh, enters this zone gets real, real sick. There is some a latency period, so it's not quite as obvious as something like a chemical weapons attack where it's immediate and people then know to don their personal protective equipment. So it has some advantages. That's some, one of those sort of more uh, well understood uh, instances of that where, you know, a lot of countries have uh, weaponized that uh, at various points, even if they didn't use it. But one of the more interesting uh, vectors is tick illnesses. Um, I mentioned uh, tularemia um, a little bit before, which is tick-borne. But there's an entire uh, strain of research that uh, looks like it was sort of undertaken by undertook undertaken by ex uh, German and Swiss uh, scientists in the employ of the American government uh, after the Second uh, World War during the uh, the Cold War. And there's a very good book, um, Bitten, that I've been basing a lot of this uh, reading off of that deals particularly uh, with this fellow, uh, Willy Bergdorfer. This is the rare, uh, I guess, not so rare uh, instance where the Wikipedia page uh, really <laughs> skips over all of the interesting parts. Um, he was a Swiss scientist who... Uh, emigrated to the U.S. Um, shortly after uh, World War II and got a position in the uh, the Rocky Mountain Lab uh, in uh, Hamilton, Montana, basically out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and as he progressed in his career, essentially uh, developed a uh, expertise in uh, tick-based illnesses and particularly tick cultivation. And back in the day, this was actually, you know, a fairly uh, sophisticated endeavor. Um, there's some stories of him having to go in with uh, essentially a Swiss jeweler equipment and a scalpel to literally dissect a tick that is smaller than a grain of rice. Uh, you know, you think about how small a tick is if you've ever been in a wood in the woods and, uh, you know, caught one of the little bastards, uh, you know, sucking from God only knows where, like they can be extremely small, especially the deer ticks that are actually, uh, infectious as opposed to the wood ticks that tend to be a little bit bigger. So he developed this, uh, expertise and then the record, uh, sort of goes 
a little bit uh, dark and late in his uh, late in his life after he was well retired, um, people sort of put together um, some of the uh, pieces of uh, things that he had published on where in the early 50s, he's talking about um, selecting uh, ticks for uh, uh, higher ability to carry um, infectious agents. And then magically in the uh, 1980s and 1982, after a, a long journey to Switzerland, he uh, discovers, quote unquote, uh, a, a tick-borne bacteria that he uh, posits as the cause of Lyme disease. Is this the same disease that arguably was created by the U.S. government? I think it's it's not just arguable at this point. There's, like, it's absolutely confirmed that the reason it's called Lyme disease is because there is a town, Lyme, uh, Connecticut, I believe, uh, that was the first main outbreak of it. And this is something that, you know, theoretically, when you talk about like the history of Lyme disease, it had been sort of endemic to the, uh, the American continent, uh, except for it surfaced in this one particular location in, in a extremely, uh, uh, symptomatic and virulent uh, form in a location that happened to be just across the bay, separated by a channel from the uh, the U.S. Uh, Biological Warfare Research uh, Institution in uh, Plum Island. It should be added. Don't know that deer swim, but they can in fact swim. Yeah, I mean that's how they get out to islands. If you uh, if you go down to the uh, the Florida Keys. Uh, some of those islands are separated by a goodly distance, and you'll see the uh, the miniature deer there that grow full size to about the size of a house cat. And you know, those those guys swam out there, and when they uh, when they swim out there, they bring whatever's living on or inside of them, and that includes uh, that includes our friend the deer tick. So bioweapons have always terrified me. I do not know of many cases perhaps other than this where they have been employed or at least admittedly employed. I mean, that's something maybe as a sort of an adversary you don't want to admit because it's very hard to trace the origin because of the time delay and the obviously the very small nature of the, the weapon itself. But it obviously has the potential for killing a huge number of people. And what's gotten even crazier is they have been able, to, with genetic engineering, they've been able to start working on targeted biological weapons in the past couple decades, probably. But I've been hearing about them for the last decade. And this isn't just InfoWars stuff. It, it seems fairly credible that there has been research put into this. Now, during the Cold War, the superpowers certainly put a lot of effort into this. And some of the stuff coming out of both sides was, I would say, thankfully never released, but it really was some potentially billion, you know, scale uh, weapon 
weapon deadliness scale, whatever you want to call it, it had the ability to kill that many people. And so it's always scared me a lot more than nuclear weapons, which are something that you can trace typically, uh, how they're delivered unless it's, you know, by the back door. But it's hard to it's hard to get a lot of those in action at once if you're doing it uh, with uh, individual people carrying them on. And, and atomic warheads especially, not just dirty bombs, but atomic warheads are very heavy and require a lot of energy. And it's not something you can really just easily sneak into a country. Um, so if you do it, you do it very quick and you, you deliver it with an air force or a submarine based system. And typically there's only a few countries that have that ability. And so there's no real mystery as to who did it. And so that actually keeps somewhat of a lid on how much of this stuff is going to actually happen because of the retaliatory uh, threat. Uh, against somebody who would launch one of these things. But with biological weapons, you don't have that. So I just wanted to add, um, biological weapons weren't researched solely for the uh, anti-personnel capabilities, but also to be used against the livestock of the enemy, against the food supply. Right. And that's one of the, I mean, when you look historically at um, just, you know, all causes of uh, sort of mass death, the disease itself is never really what kills huge amounts of people. It's the logistical breakdown that creates the famine that ends up killing large numbers of people. Because a disease, you know, you can you can look at various epidemiological models, um, and uh, there's a, a website, The Prepared, um, that actually um, they. Their their research and articles are actually uh, very well written. Uh, the guy who runs it has his own uh, political issues, um, but uh, it's a good resource. And they compared. They've done actually a fantastic job of comparing uh, some of the uh, very recently released, as in within the last like three days, uh, epidemiological uh, models of the of the Chinese influenza. So I, I would recommend uh, checking them out. They compare uh, the, the latest uh, four or so papers and their various uh, conclusions and implications. Um, but you see things like the, uh, the R0 uh, value, like how many people uh, a average carrier of this disease is going to infect the incubation period, how long it takes uh, before uh, somebody goes from infected to themselves able to uh, spread uh, whichever disease. And the idea of whether uh, somebody is uh, transmitting while they're asymptomatic. In other words, um, can you spread uh, whichever disease even if you are not uh, personally sneezing and coughing and racked with whatever. And you can combine these and see that something that is super fatal um, such as Ebola, is actually fairly easy to contain um, because you're dead before you can spread it to that many people. Something that is uh, sort of more chronic uh, can spread to a wider area, but it also doesn't have the same uh, debilitating effect. So there's a sort of, uh, if you will, sweet spot um, where... Uh, you're debilitated enough that uh, you're not going to die immediately. You're not able to carry on productive work. People are still able to care for you and you have some good odds of survival. 
but in the meantime, your logistics uh, situation is so screwed up, both your medical logistics and your just transport logistics, your uh, labor supply for harvesting and moving crops, that it becomes, uh, you know, in a twisted sense, maximally effective, which incidentally co- corresponds pretty well with the symptoms of Lyme disease, where you have kind of crippling fatigue on and off for ever. The use in kind of a uh, battlefield context versus an anti-population context, you would expect that to kind of reify in different uh, characteristics. If you have something uh, more immediately deadly um, that you want to use because there's an area that you want to keep a particular division of soldiers out of versus you just want to make life suck but not suck too badly, uh, for the uh, the people that are actually producing the war material um, behind the lines. How would you do area denial with biological weapons? I could see it with chemical, but biological requires active hosts to be alive. And... Well, uh, yeah, so uh, ticks actually work really great for this. Oh, I see, um, I see, okay. Um, or things like uh, spores that can be aeros- aerosolized um, and uh, can actually live for some amount of time. Mm. Like, you know, even something that only lasts for like a day can be extremely useful if you're trying to uh, if you're trying to maneuver. Uh, but I mean, the thing about Lyme disease is that. So people will um, bring up the uh, the fact that, okay, you can, like, dig up fossils. I know implying fossils exist, but you can dig up archaeological evidence that people claim uh, indicates the presence of the Lyme bacteria for, uh, like, tens of thousands of years. And one of the interesting things about this uh this interview with uh willie what's his name is that there's a uh, implication given that the lyme disease complex is not just uh sort of you know a disease caused by a bacteria like you know you get i don't know gonorrhea and it's like there's a bacteria that causes this disease you kill the disease with antibiotics, and then you're cured. But Lyme disease doesn't seem to respond that way. And the uh, thesis is, and the sort of implication of some of the interviews that he gave very late in his life, he died in 2014, uh, are that it's more of a system where you have uh, four components. You have the uh, the human target. You have the tick host you have the uh, the actual Lyme bacteria um, uh, payload, if you will, and then you have a virus that activates the payload. So in other words, uh, there's sort of a synthesis of these four parts where if you get rid of all the bacteria, because the bacteria is endemic, to uh, this tick population and just sort of exists at kind of this background level. But there's some mechanism that seems to be uh, occurring or present where there's this viral component that actually modifies the bacteria or causes the bacteria to exhibit the much more severe symptoms where, you know, to claim that Lyme 
disease has been endemic in North America because the Lyme bacteria has existed for tens of thousands of years. It's like, well, yeah, but buddy, like, you know, Lyme disease in its current symptomatic form is extremely recent, though. Nobody talks about this before 1950. Nobody exhibits this uh, this complex of systems, so or of uh, of syndromes of symptoms. So uh, that and that's an extremely. Though, Hank. 1970s. I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It started like occurring or it started becoming noticeable as a phase shift in this thing in the 1970s. And that's sort of like that multi, it would be that multi-stage. Like, I mean, that, that's like, that's something that's also extremely useful in like development of these things. And you could see how some grad student would just absolutely nerd the hell out over the idea that, wow, we have this like extremely uh, sophisticated delivery platform where like, you know, ticks can move, ticks can stay in an area. If you have like a deer tick, it'll just like sit almost hibernating on a, a blade of grass, like more or less forever. Like they're not moving around. They're not consuming a lot of energy. They'll stay there for days. And when they hear the kind of, you know, the rustling of the grass, you know, they'll latch on to whatever walks by and crawl down and do their thing and start, uh, you know, sucking your blood. And I believe they respond to, they're sensitive to carbon dioxide. Yeah, and touch. They are blind. That's they don't how they have any sort of photoreceptors. So, I mean, that's great if you want area denial. And, you know, if you could just give a megadose of antibiotics and cure the supposed uh, the supposed bacterial affection, like, it wouldn't be worthwhile. Like, armies stockpile uh, antibiotics for obvious reasons. There's antibiotics probably that we have that don't really... Uh, you know, exist uh, in uh, in civilian uh, common well, usage. The Gulf War syndrome is commonly attributed to a overdosing of anthrax vaccines. Uh, what they had to do, according to some sources, is that because the buildup and the plan for going to war was quicker than they had originally designed this vaccine uh, to to have time to take effect, and I think normally it would take about six months for it to be fully. Uh, inculcated into the body such that it could resist anthrax. They had to they had to somehow speed it up, and so a lot of people think it was that was one of the big reasons why a lot of these guys got sick. In addition to the depleted uranium and and whatnot that was also going yeah, on over like there, the human immune system is just nightmare fuel. Like the uh, <laughs> there's so if you want some actual nightmare fuel, look at like immunological responses to pregnancy, like where there's a really delicate balancing act between uh, your immune system just destroying something that's 50% uh, foreign DNA versus the uh, the immunosuppressant effect of pregnancy itself. Like it's it's just it's astonishing that anything works at all, and so it's it's very easy for uh, 
you to have a situation where your immune system starts attacking stuff that it's not supposed to, particularly when you're just like jamming a bunch of foreign bodies in there specifically to engender that kind of response, as in the case with uh, weird, untested, novel vaccines. Yeah, and as we know, vaccines are not a, not always and oftentimes typically uh, semi-alive. And so you're basically just trying to prompt an immune system evolution in a quicker rate than it normally would such that you survive it and then come out immune or somewhat resistant to a virus or bacteria, I suppose. And in the case of, uh, of anthrax, it sounds like they basically just pump too much, uh, active stuff into these guys. I mean, I find that completely plausible. Like, you know, if you look at the absolutely retarded statistical modeling that, the medical establishment was using until extremely recently that you would have like a non-linear effect from different combinations of the dozen, couple dozen, whatever things you might be vaccinated against over the course of your life. Like they, they literally were not doing epidemiological, uh, studies of nonlinear interactions between like different combinations of vaccines because nobody was doing nonlinear analyses of anything. So, I mean, it's, it's like, I find it plausible because there are so many, uh, uh, people that appear to have no ill effects from these things that it is all benign but I also find it completely plausible that there's like, you know, 0.1%, i.e. like, you know, several million people that do suffer bad side effects from things like having, a, as, a, as Trump said, a massive dose of many, many vaccines all at once and changes. Another thought I had when I was listening to you talk about area denial and using ticks as the delivery vector for bioweapons in a supposedly a, a sort of real-time war scenario. But I mean, you can imagine this is happening in our fourth generation warfare era happening now. Uh, who knows, you know, who released, you know, what these days. But my question is, okay, you target, and, and again, this all goes back to targeting and my issue with biological weapons. You target a certain area for denial, but how do you keep it from spreading? How do you keep it from coming back home, especially? So, fun story. Um, one of the uh, th- this book is packed full of anecdotes, which is a plus and a minus because uh, the uh, the lady who uh, wrote this uh, book, unfortunately, was a lady with uh, who had Lyme disease, or I guess still suffers from some of uh, the uh, symptoms of Lyme disease, and so she feels the need to inject. Lyme is uh, terrible. Yeah, I mean, she she feels the need to inject, so to speak, uh, both interesting anecdotes and not interesting anecdotes that are just like her personally sucking. Um, But one of the interesting anecdotes. So a lot of this research, like there's the Plum Island facility, um, there's the Rocky Mountain uh, lab, there's Fort Detrick. There's also just like stuff out in the middle of the desert. because the desert is just very far away from everything. So during the 50s, this is what engendered a lot of uh, of anger and mistrust 
by the population of the western states because you know they're nuking half of montana and in addition uh there was this one particular incident where uh, they were using um groundhogs i believe uh and trying to uh, see because the question is okay how fast does a tick move and you really don't know like because you can't just like put them in a petri dish and watch them wiggle around because it's not realistic so they would have one open air cage of uh i think it was prairie dogs it was some sort of like a desert rodent and they would have another cage of prairie dogs like you know a couple of meters away 10 meters away whatever and they would drop a bunch of ticks on the first cage and they would see how long it took until the second cage started to get sick. And I don't believe this was, you know, the kind of posited uh, Lyme disease. This was some other kind of thing where it might have even been uninfected ticks and they just culled them every so often. But their brilliant plan for containment, you know, you know, God forbid one of these plague-ridden prairie dogs like figures out how to dig as prairie dogs do, or like the cage gets a little bit rusty, whatever. Their brilliant plan was they would have a sniper in the hill above the plague-infested prairie dog wire cage mesh setup, what? whose job it was. I I'm not joking. Whose job it was to sit there with like a 1903 Springfield or whatever they had at the time and smoke them if one of these prairie dogs got <laughs> out of their cage. At which point, I mean, like, you know, he's not like sitting up there with his, uh, his like boomer tier $5,000-1022. I assume he was using like a military rifle with like a 308 or a 30-06. The prairie dog is going to be vaporized and you're going to have little bits of infected prairie dog and little bits of infected tick spread out over the entire zip code at this point. But that was the to plan. To be picked up by birds. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, what if there's a crow that flies down? It's like, well, I guess, you know, <laughs> the, best, uh, the best marine sniper or whichever branch he was from like yeah we're not going to send him to the folda gap so he can be picking off uh, enemy colonels no the very best guy we're going to send him to rural utah or whatever so he can be sniping crows at the end of this canyon like they had a a situation where um they were supposed to be demoing i believe it was vx or one of the vx uh precursors which is, of course, a, a highly um, a deadly uh, nerve gas. It's basically uh, roach spray for people, uh, where it just shuts down your uh, your nervous system uh, wholesale. You eventually just, uh, your lungs stop working, just choke to death. And they were uh, supposed to be demoing it on another one of these uh, prairie dog infestations. I guess they, they really just hated prairie dogs. They had a bunch of them in stands and this uh, this reviewing stand set up so that they could demo um, their uh, their chemical uh, weapons project uh, to these uh, visiting generals. Only 
you know, it turns out there's a lot of canyons and valleys in uh, this particular part of uh, Utah. So when they flew by, I guess they hit slightly wrong and the wind shifted a little bit. And they had essentially all of the cattle in the uh, the next valley over that some you know poor innocent rancher uh, had been cultivating. Uh, all the cattle died. And uh, all the sheep in the next valley over died. Uh, pretty much, uh, you know, it's a, a massive success. Uh, but these are all, uh, you know, they're more confirmed than the uh, the Lyme uh, causality. Um, you know, you can look up chemical weapons tests, um, you know, gone wrong and causing these uh, mass livestock die-offs. But things like this, without any sort of notification or really you know, minor safety precautions for the local population or why a lot of people in the area with extremely good reason, um, you know, a lot of their legislators have been uh, the ones pushing some of these uh, disclosure bills that have very recently um, gotten through Congress. Do we know of any other laboratories like this? Like Plum Island is pretty infamous, but uh, Rocky Mountain you mentioned. D does the government try to keep this secret? A word for Dietrich. Okay. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it supposedly has been shut down, at least in its kind of offensive capacity. Like the uh, the Plum Island facility. I mean, you want to talk about safety procedures? At one point, they dug a moat. Like, th this was their brilliant plan. They're like, okay, well, you know, the locals uh, were complaining that, you know, they had been hearing rumors of all these, like, terrible diseases being just in that office park over there. <sighs> so they decided that they would dig a moat and fill it with water under the thesis that ticks cannot swim. And this would, you know, forestall, because these things are, like, green of sand sized. Like, they're they're really tiny, so it's it's kind of easy to lose them, actually. Why don't they do this in Alaska? I mean, come on. Underground. I, I don't yeah. understand because, this. Adam, Alaska isn't only a few miles from the North American continent's largest population center. Yeah. Well, that, that sort of reminds me of all the conspiracy theories, and there, there are too many to mention, but... Uh, a lot of people think that some of this stuff might be for population control at one point because we're sort of running out of room here. And yeah, I mean, I think there's there's easier ways to do population control, frankly, than biological warfare. Well, like abortion and feminism? Yeah, I agree. I mean... <laughs> but I mean, even even more than that, like, it's... You, I mean, so again, like in order to have a mass die-off, you don't need infectious diseases. You really do need just like widespread loss of calories. So unless your, you know, population control plan either doesn't really control that much population, like abortion, where it's just sort of, you know, acting at the margin. Or feminism, where you just you know drive your TFR um, from that crucial uh, you know two point three to one point nine threshold. Um, 
unless you have a plan for how whatever is going to crash that logistics network, um, I mean, you just don't have uh, the uh, the reduction that you would want for any sort of uh, sociological purpose, and especially with biological warfare of like, you know, Manhattan is extremely dense. Manhattan has a lot of the people that presumably, I guess, would be targeted by anything if you were going to go full, uh, you know, deus ex uh, with it, that you would, uh, you know, prospectively want your Illuminati or whatever to be targeting. But it's also got a bunch of billionaires. Same thing with, you know, San Francisco and Los Angeles and Houston and every other gigantic metro area that has a rich elite overclass and you know, millions of uh, shifty bums. So it's like, I, I don't find that uh, plausible as a, uh, like a strategy, I guess. I think it's totally plausible that a lot of the stuff escaped the lab. I think it's also totally plausible that, you know, modern, uh, modern transportation networks just make it, really easy for things to go hypercritical all of a sudden if you have something like the Chinese pneumonia that has a relatively long incubation period it's like 10 days doesn't help you when everybody is taking like five six day work trips where they fly from wherever to wherever ends up being your epicenter and then back and by the time it's detected it's way too late because somebody flew from like you know bentonville uh deep in the heart of the ozarks to go uh check on one of their suppliers in wuhan and back again and uh suddenly they're uh they're sneezing pretty loud uh, back in the uh, the walmart home office well i had a i don't know if we want to do this now but i think it's kind of interesting if you look at it not just uh, epidemiologically, but sociologically, how our society views infection and what an infection is, really. I mean, I would define it as something that's foreign and parasitical. And you can probably see where I'm going with this, but it's it's fascinating watching movies and how everybody... I see where you're going with this. Good. <laughs> Discuss, discuss. Agent Smith, uh, Agent Smith dialogue here, monologue here. Well, what's also funny about that is I remember watching a, a clip. I mean, I, I I don't think I've watched a Jordan Peterson video in years, but um, it was a clip of him talking to probably Joe Rogan, uh, somebody like that, and he was kind of just doing that kind of, uh, you know, very concerned, strained face that he always does when he's trying to show how empathetic he is. And he was talking about how um, Hitler and the Third Reich had this vir- virology, like, approach to others and foreigners, or not in foreigners, but particular Jews, obviously, but just people that they viewed as problematic for them. And he basically is inferring that this is some sort of pathological disorder in the German people to have this viewpoint actually wasn't freaking true. Like they, they did not have like a epidemiological approach to 
like their their notions of of population control that that's completely false. Like they they did not approach it through a public health lens. Yeah, that's, he he wasn't he wasn't saying wrong. that. He was just implying that the motivation is how like the, to do that sort of uh, demographic policing is akin to what you would do when you're dealing with an infection. And I'm like, yeah. What's your point? <laughs> so, like, yeah, I mean, this, these are the same people that, you know, you can, you can have like, uh, like abstract phenomena, like the notion of, uh, exponential growth. And, and you can talk about situations like via the lens of like phenomena that follow exponential growth that's that applies to like dozens of fields from epidemiolo- epidemiology to uh economics to uh you know knowledge transmission to like electricity and it's uh it it's stupid to be like well if you think that like a phenomenon follows an exponential growth pattern so it's important to nip it in the bud than therefore Hitler or like I mean I don't, I don't even understand it's like looking at anything that has a recursive analogy to biology is therefore Hitler it's like you no, know, biology no, follows the same physical laws that everything else does no no he's basically saying that Hitler not other people acting like Hitler but Hitler and the sort of uh, government policy that Hitler was promoting was like you would have for disease control and he I think he's implying that, true. that no no no, no. He, he's not being so literal as I think you might be thinking he is He's just saying that this is a morally outrageous thing to do to people as opposed to what you yeah, do to so, a virus. And yeah, I'm so arguing really that it is what did, not. What did, wait, hold on. Basically, hold on. If, the, if those people are the, acting like viruses. End policy of speech. then? To, wouldn't, wouldn't that mean that you would want to introduce a bunch of Jews into the society? You <laughs> well, know? Peterson probably would, but I don't know who... <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, so I know exactly how this strain of rhetoric goes. They say, like, you know, that like you got to do your best Peter Jennings voiceover. The Nazis viewed Jews as a infection, and then they like literally they will show the two scenes from the uh, the Nazi propaganda film. I forget what that name is, where they uh, they juxtapose um, uh, uh, scenes of like Jews like looking really dirty in some ghetto and like a uh, stream of rats. And so like they will juxtapose their golem. Well, I mean, so like the rhetorical trick is like you juxtapose like the biological frame on top, like the, the framing that there is like a biological policy approach going on on top of a rhetorical appeal that's like fuck these people they're dirty and there's too many of them and we don't like them like that's the essence of that propaganda film not like uh like some sort of elaborate like like uh 
like contagion metaphor like that that can be applied to literally anything like and it's extremely common to apply that like sort of metaphor i mean like even in uh anti anti-german anti-nazi context like you know the like how many times have we heard like the disease of anti-semitism or like the sickness of uh the sickness of racism like these are like that doesn't imply that like it's being approached via like a genuine uh like uh, like what's the r zero like how many racists does every racist Twitter account create? Like what's the, the average time before you start reading racist Twitter until you become racist? It's no, it's just like tribal. Fuck these people. I don't like them. They're stinky. Also, Jordan Peterson has succumbed to his own personal chemical weapons uh, reserve. So I I was going to say, look who's talking. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to kick dirt on the man's grave. I mean, it, I guess the sort of proof is in the pudding. We haven't really well, heard not, of him in a while. Just an What's that? Not dead yet. He's just an asshole. No, he, uh, de- dirt on his is the grave of his career. I mean, he's kind of dropped off the the radar. It would seem, uh, and I think he was discredited somewhat by this addiction admission. Now. You could you could view that empathetically and also somewhat sincerely in that you know every man is flawed and if he's open about it and, and brave enough to admit that to people there is some I think merit deserved there but uh, I don't like what he was I, saying and I I I, I just well, I, I focus on that mainly, but your pharmaceutical journey yeah how he says it is pretty funny too right but um, yeah I just thought that that sort of way people think about one thing and then they can't apply that logic to other things it's obviously it's very emotional that there's this blockage and maybe that's that's a good thing I, mean, I kind of want to discuss this with you because you guys because not everything in in a society that I want to live in should be rational per se uh, there, there should be a place for emotion and for qualities that are not as quantitatively analyzed as something like a spread of a virus or the spread of a, you know, a product, you know, around the world through a logistics network. I mean, there, there's a culture, there's, there's the, there's a people and that has some value that, you know, money shouldn't be able to buy arguably. And so I, I don't want to completely discredit anybody who doesn't like the cold, hard analysis on human populations. But but when we're dealing with um, a world as complicated as, as ours is, and we're dealing with as full of a planet as ours is, I don't see how you can't be at least open to applying some of the tools and techniques that we have obviously utilized to our great benefit as a human race at least um, to fight disease to also then apply that towards managing the state of the nation so that's just how i see things like having immigration controls and basic concepts like that are, are akin to having quarantines and, and borders uh and, i mean like they're not just it's not just an analogy it's just 
literally the thing. Well, that used to be public like, policy. It, That's what you, Ellis Island was. I mean, it was like, yeah, it, it's for like, disease. okay, you're, you're coming from over there to over here. Like we know that there are diseases that are endemic to this location. Therefore, like quarantine. And of course, you know, that makes it more difficult to go and, you know, you get a phone call from your, your factory in Shenzhen. It's like, uh, the tolerance in this part, like it, it seems to be stacking weirdly with this other tolerance and, you know, it's not passing final QC. Can you come over and take a look at this? Like you're not necessarily able to hop on a jet and fly to Shenzhen or Wuhan, I guess. And immediately it, it's the problem fly back. The, but you know, there like there are reasons. We have, why we have been joined by Hans. Hans, oh. do you have the H one B one flu? Uh I might have uh something like the HIV flu. I don't know about the H one B one flu. HIV uh, is more probably than the just flu. a very slight difference. <clears throat> well, if you have HIV, Wait, you uh, have you have fucking AIDS. <laughs> does that transmit over internet? Yeah, I think it does. Oh God, cover your microphone, man. Got the yeah. ear give now, thanks, Hans. I just actually I saw recent, uh, just a few moments ago before I jumped on this, that uh, apparently. The, there is now a likely confirmed case at George Mason University of coronavirus. That. And the student in question is refusing to see a medical professional. I don't go to hospital. <laughs> I be fine. So, well, do you guys remember when that redheaded uh, aid worker that went to Africa from America came back and she had Ebola? And uh, she's like riding her bike around New England and just sort of laughing at the camera. I'm like, why isn't she in jail? Like, I don't understand how these people are allowed to coexist and, and infect other people like this. Am I cruel for asking that question? I, I, yeah, I mean, it I mean, seems like it's you know, like you know when we sent many astronauts the to space. When we sent astronauts to space and there's like that, like, you know, uh, the, the video footage of them like waving through the, uh, through the, the porthole, um, to, to LBJ, I guess, or no, Nixon. Um, I think some of yeah. them were from well, the, the upper atmosphere in, stuff, in office, uh, but yeah. that's because like, they're, they're like, okay, we don't actually know it's floating around up there in the upper atmosphere. So uh, we're going to make sure you guys aren't real sick before you bring home something that there's absolutely no immunity to. Like, they had a quarantine for those guys. Yeah. And, like, they're astronauts. They get a ticker. Space flu. Like, you know, what does, what does like, Zhen, the, the, like, Chinese grad student get? Like, you know, why why does like Buzz Aldrin spend you know, a week in quarantine on the off chance and Jen from Wuhan is just like, Hey, glad you're back. 
I don't know, maybe because the country was somewhat of a country back then. Like, so, this, this is not the first time. Like, how many plagues does it require originating from the specific combination of, like, just eating the bat, like, the, the pig mixed with the donkey, like, just all the animals in one kind of big protein scrum and deep fried and gutter oil and like insulfated straight into your, uh, your nasal cavity before it's just like, oof, China, maybe, uh, maybe not so much. So, uh, I don't know if you guys have already talked about this. Um, but there are, in theory, there are no two international treaties that outlaw bioweapons, that were passed in 1925 and 1972. Oh, that'll work. But uh, obviously no one... <laughs> now I can sleep well. Yeah, yeah. So obviously no one actually takes that seriously, uh, especially the people on this call. So what exactly is the uh, real uh, regulation, if there is any, that anyone actually follows on developing bioweapons, or is that really just a moot point? Well, I mean, we talk... We're talking about it's mutually like, assured destruction, and I don't know if that applies here, but it's like, you know, the Soviets and the Americans both had them, and they didn't seem to be deployed, so I think there might be something to that. But the problem is you got a rogue actor or a nut job or somebody like that who gets his hands on the wrong vial and, oops, dropped it in the subway. I mean, remember that we did a show about this with the uh, the guys in Japan. They they tried to infect yeah, the Tokyo um, subway Martin system. Shriko. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and it's not even the notion of a uh, rogue actor per se. I mean, there's there's like weapon system development is really expensive. And if you have limited budgets and, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about why biological weapons are a little bit tricky uh, to develop. But what you would be more concerned about would be kind of... Uh, uh, knock-on effects or, I guess, implications from your just regular civilian research into uh, things like what exactly makes a disease transmissible. There's some stuff that's clearly uh, like weaponizable or at a minimum dual-purpose research. Like, you know, if, if the question is how do I pack a bunch of these spores into a small area and then disperse them and have them still be alive. It's like, oh, okay, that's a delivery platform. That's military research. But there was a publication a few years ago about, um, I think it was like uh, essentially uh, gene editing uh, H1N1 to make it more uh, transmissible. Um, the theory of the research being uh, like we need to understand like in general how transmissibility uh, works in viruses if we're going to understand uh, how to do things like you know targeted uh, gene therapy to prevent them from being transmissible um, or vaccine research or whatever. Um, but this was fairly controversial at the time because it's like wow that seems like that uh, has some implications for, uh, you know, accidental or accidental on purpose, uh, whoopsies, uh, with this newly contagious strain. 
but I mean, like, there's not really an answer for it. Like these, the toolkit is incredibly well understood. It's like the most that you can do is just kind of wave your hands and say, well, if you have limited military budgets, like weaponized influenza is, is like the least thing that you would be spending money on. Like it's, it's way too dangerous for the person who's using it. So you might as well just kind of formalize the idea that this really isn't worth anybody's time and have just extremely minimal verification procedures that are really just like making sure that your scientists are talking to each other on the thesis that this spreads genuine public health and biological research to each other and that eventually they all catch on if something fishy is going on with whatever some prominent researcher is working on. Well, the biological warfare really kick off. I mean, from what I've read, it really started uh, becoming an issue sometimes around the turn of the century when there were a lot of this uh, talk of poisoned weapons uh, becoming uh, kind of mainstream and then trying, countries trying to ban them or acting in good faith not to use them. But after World War One, um, I think that the technically the first country with a bioweapons platform was Canada. Uh, by accident, they had a very prominent guy named, of course. Uh, <clears throat> named Sir Frederick Banting. Actually, he uh, discovered insulin. Um, but he created the first like, private, corporate-sponsored bioweapons facility, or bioweapons research facility, whatever you want to call it, in 1940. Um, and But the United States kind of, and the United Kingdom shortly thereafter created their own versions of that. Uh, and I think that the Japanese tried to steal the yellow fever from the Rockefeller Institute in 1939 uh, in order to <laughs> weaponize them for some That's reason. That's just funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so yeah, it was really it was Rockefeller that was an early sponsor of biological weapons research. Anyone know why? Why? Yeah. Is he just like trying to sell? more pharmaceuticals i mean i know he invested in that well stuff, it was specifically but... the rockefeller foundation which is uh, you know i mean aka cia yes. yes exactly hmm. so it seems like after world war ii uh pretty much everyone in the world who of any importance was getting involved in bioweapons research uh and the soviets i think uh attempted at least several times to get involved. I, I know that, uh, I think the Hmong population in Laos had accused, Laos and, Cambod and Vietnam had accused the Soviets of using some kind of bioweapon against them, some kind of uh, mix of chemicals. Well, the Germans... Bioweaponry. The Germans were ahead of the curve, and both the Russia, after the defeat of Germany, both the Russians and the Americans got hold of Germans... Right. Uh, weapon scientists, as everyone knows, America's pa Operation Paperclip. Well, some of those were actually, one of them in particular uh, was uh, put in charge of the Plum Island Research Facility for a brief time. Hmm. Yeah, the lesson of, uh, you know, 1945 to 1970 or so is that if you want something done, you really got to put a Nazi in charge. <laughs> 
then suddenly it's like, <laughs> well, shit, we're all out. I guess it's the seventies now, and things suck. That's an interesting term paper thesis. <laughs> you should you should write that up. Um, yeah, I always <laughs> just thought it was the drugs, <laughs> but <laughs> it's true. <laughs> okay. Um, How much do you guys know about uh, the Soviet bioweapons program? I, I don't just, think anybody knows, like, knows in capital, uh, capital well, I read a, a book a long time ago that was sort of comparing just the stuff coming out of the U.S. and the USSR, and I think the Soviets had some really awful stuff. Um, it, yeah. Honestly, yeah. It, I mean... So the, the Soviets still, uh, up until, like, it was just... A week or two ago, that the uh, the U.S. Uh, FDA Food and Drug Administration uh, approved uh, the first phage therapy, which is essentially a uh, tailored uh, virus uh, or bacteria eating bacteria that attacks um, whatever disease uh, you theoretically have, um, which is something that for bizarre reasons uh the soviets uh had a special emphasis on like tailoring viruses to attack uh particular uh particular bacteria and particular um, things like cancer cells um which you know you could see how that you know an expertise in developing tailored viruses would be maybe uh particularly handy in a weapon uh, context but like the parallel developments there because a lot of the stuff was compartmentalized yeah they're they're gonna have some nasty stuff well how much credence so do you guys put in the targeted uh not in terms of area but in terms of genotypical expression targeting that's so biological weapons? like I, I have not seen okay like the no nobody here's a biologist but if you wanted to target particular sections there there would have to be a mechanism right and well I mean like the, obviously uh, malaria is problematic for non-Africans and yellow fever it, it, it's the opposite. is a problem they, they for have Europeans like a, in South America and smallpox is a problem for Native Americans. So it, it does depend on your genetics and I, I don't see yeah, how this is you, not possible. Oh, I mean, it's, it's theoretically possible, but it's like the payoff and then the overlap because, okay, like somebody on Twitter made this in a kind of joke context but it's a serious question like if you're targeting america it's like are, are you targeting like epitypical uh like 56 percent face like what are what are you targeting exactly like that yeah no fair question i mean that's well if you're if you're an adversary you're probably targeting the people you fear the most which is definitely not left 50 56 percent so somebody else somebody that has maybe uh i haven't like i haven't seen anything on that how that practically works or any claim that anyone has developed that in any context which doesn't mean that it doesn't exist but i mean you would think that there would be there would be something 
and the potential for blowback there, because if, if you're targeting it, it's the same sort of thing where if you're targeting for uh, like logistical disruption behind the line stuff, you're going to have potentially a very high mutation rate because it's spreading basically continuously because everybody's just kind of sick all the time and just operating at 30% capacity. So, I mean, something that's targeted at whatever doesn't necessarily stay that way. And if it's a tactical area denial type thing, it's like, well, why would you bother? Why wouldn't you just kill everything that moves because you know the area that you're targeting? Like things that spread organically in a population, I don't think there's a plausible mechanism or any plausible research that I've heard of a lot of people who talk about this stuff and they don't they don't mention any of this kind of thing either they they just sort of like they mention that somebody was maybe interested in the field like there's some of the stuff floating around about like epstein and you know somebody posits that uh like the israelis were interested in targeted bioweapons but they shared too much dna with the palestinians lol Except for when you dig down into it, there's just nothing there. There's nobody talking about any concrete paper that I can find with anything remotely uh, engaging with that area. It's just like somebody who thought that it might be a cool idea and then the paper trail stops. Yeah, people have accused China of doing it. I mean, I don't read Chinese, obviously, so I'm no help there in terms of validating that claim. But it's... um, it's something to wonder about, you know, and the, I think the CRISPR Cas9 stuff was potentially being uh, used in China by uh, one particular scientist, which, which other scientists were actually somewhat uh, skeptical of, but the, uh, the willingness to do things with uh, biology and genetic engineering in China does seem to be higher than in other countries. Oh yeah. I mean, that's why they eat the bat. It's like, hey, let's let's inject this into your uh, into your system. To, see what happens. We 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 haven't covered one area of this that I would like to talk about, and that is is this of uh, of bioweapons for targeted assassination rather than uh, area denial or mass population attacks. That's Just tough. Case, you know, for example, That's tough. I don't know if we're there um, yet. Well, many people have speculated that that's what happened to the late Yasser Arafat. And we know, of course, about the CIA's research into cancer and being able to deliver um, they were working on uh, back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. But d- just the use of a viable assassination means of giving someone a terminal illness and uh, having the plausible deniability is like, that, you know, why they were taken by the Could you just poison them or give them a heart attack? Yeah, just like have a, like we have drones now, just like have a drone like continuously beaming. Because that's like the, the confirmed, you know, CIA cancer ray stuff. Um, like the, uh, the experiments on that, uh, the Puerto Rican uh, separatist guy. Um, you can look up like a, uh, uh, this is an interesting story. You look up a uh, Puerto Rican uh, independence uh, cancer jail cell research, and you can find this guy. I'm, I'm blanking on his name or the uh, the backstory, but essentially it's pretty well confirmed that there are experiments on, like, so exactly how much radiation does it take to, like, 
plausibly give somebody cancer um, on this guy in particular. But it's all like, you know, have a drone hover like 500 feet above and just like just constantly nuke the guy. Like you could do that and you don't need to have anyone sneak up and sneeze in his face. Yeah. If they do that, why wouldn't you use something chemical? Like there's plenty of really deniable chemical agents. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's not possible. It just seems like it would be a much more difficult and expensive way to kill somebody without a trace than other means that seem to have very little trace. I mean, microwave uh, uh, technology, for example, can be used to cook people. Uh, and th- this is th- this is DARPA stuff, but uh, I- I've heard m- uh, several sources talk about how you can you can basically boil somebody from uh, remote uh, transmissions vehicle. I mean, there's area denial uh denial uh crowd control vehicles that are are publicly acknowledged why not uh ramp it up a little bit to just kill somebody now that would leave somewhat of a trace but again i mean there's there's just been other other things that have been around that seem like a little bit easier than maybe infecting somebody and waiting for the slow kill yeah i mean a lot of this stuff i think it's kind of the cronenberg ick factor like diseases are uh, inherently and for very good reasons, like spooky and icky. And it's very easy to kind of transmute that into uh, the, the sort of horror fascination uh, aspect. And I think that's why a lot of these things kind of uh, uh, achieve a level of uh, credence or a level of kind of uh, popularity behind them because it is like, you know, it's icky to think about uh, like, you know, bioweapons causing like people sneezing from place to place. Like there's entire genres of movies that exist in this space. Like David Cronenberg, uh, the one movie that his, uh, his son made um, had that, actually as the exact premise um the entire genre almost of uh, zombie films um it's uh it's something that kind of you know for very deep you know fittingly biological reasons we're kind of attuned to the notion of caring about who's sick how did they get sick how are they going to spread if, if they are sick? Like, what do I need to do in order to keep myself from getting sick? Um, and especially in uh, cultures like ours where we just devote absurd amount of uh, money and resources to kind of this very vague idea of health care, it's clear that, you know, this has a very uh, special place in our uh, sort of sociological and political and economic imagination. But I don't know. I'll be watching with apprehension to see what's happening in Wuhan. I'll be asking every day why the hell we haven't stopped flights from China when it would be so incredibly easy to do so. Uh I'm sure well, I'll be shouting into the void. But. No, I, I have actually a, a serious question for you guys about that because I think, well, the answer to your question, why aren't we stopping the flights when it would be incredibly obvious from a national security well, standpoint? I'm glad you figured it out. Well, it's, it's money. It's money. It, it's commercial interest. And 
the I mean, you can bring this down to your own individual job. I mean, depending on what you do, obviously, but a lot of people that I know are having to interact with people overseas and their office managers are under pressure as they are to continue to do business as usual because if they stop doing that, a competitor might beat them out or they might lose money or and whatnot. So it's that overriding profit motivation that continues the integration of the nations and the destructions of the borders, which we harp on as, as problematic for our culture, obviously, but it's uh, in our people. But it's it's money. I mean, that's why immigration, I think, is going to continue. I mean, people want to drive uh, drive sales. That That's it. It's bottom line. Literally. Like- for somebody who is elected, you know, shut it down until we can figure out what the hell is going on. Like, <laughs> it, it's following a perfect exponential curve. Yeah, I know. It turns out, I mean, this is one thing we didn't mention. So there, there's a Wuhan specifically, like the the actual city of Wuhan. It started as a uh, about a 11 million, I think, uh, person city. By the time that they closed the borders, it was a five million person city. So in <laughs> did other they words, lose like, six million <laughs> overnight from the, so, the disease? Yeah, what, like people left. They're like, "This is seeming real sketchy. I bet they're gonna probably like like close that, the uh, close the transit soon." There's something I want to get. I'm the not hell sure out. if this is funny or just something to respect in Asian culture, but. They will react with extreme uh, lack of prejudice when it comes to uh, fears of uh, contagion. Uh, I remember during SARS, and actually still to this day, uh, all the people in big cities in Asia wearing those face masks, uh, particularly in Japan uh, and places like Hong Kong, but big cities basically. And... I don't know why people in America don't have that sort of thinking. I mean, you get laughed at if you walked around with the mask on. Well, uh, I, I have heard that it's the uh, because in Asian cultures, they're just constantly hacking and coughing and spitting with no concern for people around them. And so the onus yeah. is upon you, the non sick person to cover yourself <laughs> so you don't become sick. Oh, wow. OK, well, I guess that explains some of it to, like. You know, from the age of two, being like, cover don't your cough mouth at other people. Cough, right. Although I actually happen to disagree with uh, some of that. I mean, you put it on your cough on your hand and you touch a doorknob. But um, uh, t- to be clear, viruses don't last very long outside the host. It's it's really just that sneeze that is probably the most deadly. So it is generally good this, advice for kids, I would say. This um, this thesis, or that I mean, it's pretty confirmed now that like so many people left Wuhan um, that. This has positive and negative implications. The positive implication is that a lot of these cases that are popping up throughout China may be just like people from this original disease cluster uh, finally uh, showing up with symptoms that they acquired from an actual infection around, uh, I'm just going to like posit like this bat rodeo or whatever, what is like some bat related fiesta in a uh, in Wuhan and so like the person to person uh transmissibility although we know that it can be transmitted from person to person the actual transmissibility uh may actually be low um and it's just 
you know, we're seeing the after effects of the original cluster dispersing. The negative implication is, I mean, like six million people just up and left uh, because things seemed like they were getting pretty sketchy and they were worried that uh, they might not be able to leave later. So what does that say for overall uh, Chinese stability if uh, things continue to escalate? Like they talk about bringing out the army, but it's like, okay, I I can't think of a worse environment to quarantine than somebody gets sick in an army barracks. I'm surprised. I mean, some people are speculating that this was a bioweapon that the Chinese are using on their own, on their own people. Uh, but you know, you might wonder why wasn't this released on Hong Kong or something where they've, I don't know if the protests are still going on, but it is sort of a scary thing to think about if, you know, we worry about uh, our own government doing this to us. Well, we only got 300 million people. They got 1.4 billion. So if they want to get those bioweapons figured out, I mean, Wuhan is, I looked it up because I've heard of it, but I didn't know where it was exactly. It's inland. It's actually not a coastal uh, city. <laughs> Despite that, they still have 11 million, which is astonishing, but that, it's China. So I guess it's, it shouldn't be. But um, I, I don't know if, they, if they're willing to scratch one off, you know, for the team. Again, this is speculative. I would I would hope even the Chinese would not do this, but the... Uh, the theories are, are are sort of rife. Uh, last one I'll throw at you guys was the one I heard from uh, Infowars. I was sort of curious what Alex Alex was talking about with this topic in mind, particularly, and he was saying that the patent for the vaccine for this particular virus was released about a month ago, and he's saying it's it may not be coincidental that it's now being released to the population the, the virus itself released to the population uh, i need now. to i've seen this tidbit floating around and i actually need to go and look at this patent uh actually yeah. in detail people on twitter are usually it's, not it's... the best ones for like a fine reading of things like uh like legal decisions or you know patent claims Certainly. or things of that nature. i'll give you the name of it it is uh the patents were assigned to the Perbright Institute, P-I-R-B-R-G-H-T. Doesn't sound particularly Chinese to me, but you know who knows where that uh, originates. Uh, they haven't shut down the auto suggest on this yet. Be, I mean, I haven't actually looked into this, but it might not be exactly related to what's going on. Uh, this talk, the talk of clusters of coronaviruses, has been around for years. Um, and I think that this issue has been studied pretty extensively. The term has been floating around for a long time. Uh, yeah. And I mean, they the, the, the threat model they, for they a coronavirus because they don't just want to say like Chinese pneumonia on right. the off chance the Chinese like take offense as they do and shut down your newspaper. Right. And there's this element of. Uh, most of uh, these illnesses probably are relatively easy to treat. Like I've said this before, that this issue is probably mostly endemic to China 
into this particular part of China, which is very far inland, um, which has what is an important region, but is certainly not one of the more important regions, and is full of poor people and relatively um, uh, peasant-like people who are nearby. And their living conditions and their standard of living and their way of life is very not conducive to preventing the spread of disease. This hap these kinds of things just happen in China. Um, it is a massive, closed off, weird country that is very backwards for the most part. And there's all kinds of problems that arise in China that we don't really hear about. Every five to 10 years, there is some kind of plague or illness that seems to sweep across the country. And the Chinese quarantine people, they might kill people, they'll lock up an entire village, they'll lock up a whole city. A lot of people will die and things move on. You know, you saw this with SARS, you saw this with the avian flu, we've seen this with all kinds of disease outbreaks uh, for decades in China. It just happens. There's all kinds of industrial disasters, there's all kinds of low-scale civil conflicts. I remember in, like in a series of rioting over a couple, like just a couple days, I think out in Xinjiang, uh, 400 people died. And it was just sort of tossed under the rug. It's an immensely weird country, uh, and there's a ton of people. So the numbers we're talking about really aren't that bad. And I would suspect that um, along with, you know, I think what's been somewhat reported outside of China recently, there's this uh, pig virus that is spreading amongst the, uh, the porcine population within the country. Um, the... The environment is so terrible, and there's so many of X unit of things that, of course, you're going to have some, you know, huge num a number that looks nominally huge of die off when it's really just, you know, in concordance with the massive scale you have in the whole country. Yeah, at any given point, you just have dozens of 110 year old Chinese women that are an inch away from death. Right. Just waiting and, for the and, final and step I, over the precipice. We haven't seen any number. We haven't really seen a lot of information on what, who exactly is getting sick. I mean, or who exactly is dying. I would not be shocked if 80 to 90 percent of the people who have died from this virus right now are elderly. I mean, elderly rural Chinese people are the last people that are going to survive anything. This thing doesn't even have to be that powerful. The common American flu could probably kill them just as badly. It could probably be worse, actually. I think that a lot of this is probably easily curable or easily prevented. And there, you know, there have been coronaviruses studied and talked about for years. So there probably is some kind of existing Western uh, uh, antiviral treatment already prepared and ready. Just like there was pretty much an, an existing, although much more secret, anti-Ebola treatment available for U.S. personnel who were infected. They were almost immediately given a treatment that solved all their problems. Um, I would not be surprised if, you know, the United States medical complex or even the government has already, you know, foreseen these kinds of things and developed treatments for them. It can't possibly be that hard. Uh, these these threats have been on the map for years. We've known for years that there's likely to be some kind of bat virus or some kind of exotic food virus that comes out of China. 
just due to the sheer uh, terrible environment of a giant kind of irradiated, polluted, poor country. It's inevitable that something like that's going to come out of there. And when you have this globalized trade factor and, you know, Chinese yellow menace jumping all over the planet and back all the time with all their little weird diseases, um, of course, most countries are going to develop these kind of antipathogens to deal with it. I think most countries' governments are actually on the up and up and probably just as racist as we are when it comes to Chinese people and are very keenly aware that with this expanded international trade mantra, you have to develop necessary countermeasures because when there's weird people coming out of these kind of poor backwards places, they're going to bring something with them. And the last thing you need is for them to get your whole population sick uh, because they couldn't figure out how to wash their hands. Now, don't be scared. I'm a doctor. Where am I? A special laboratory in Nevada. We brought you here. You're sick. In a true biological crisis, which our exploration of space could bring about, the present lunar receiving laboratory might prove inadequate. I therefore urge the establishment of a facility to deal specifically with an extraterrestrial form of life. Seems to me, General, Dr. Stone put one over on you. In fact, he made us all think his wildfire lab could handle any contamination from outer space. Isolate and identify. Good God. It's no accident. I suspect they were looking for the ultimate biological weapon. You can change everything. It's crazy. I didn't know buzzards fly at night. Buzzards only come when something's dead. Bendel Decker to Cable One. What's happening? We see bodies. Lots of them. These people were cut down in mid-stride. Everybody's dead! You! You did it! I recommend calling a wildfire alert. All members of your team have been cleared and are now being called in. If things get out of control, even you can't work miracles. Grandpa, there's a car and they got guns. What's going on? This communication is being monitored. Never believe this could really happen. Experiment with your own life, damn it!